It's a question I'm sure you've been asked uh, many times if you've been trying to share your faith with, share about Christ with people who need Christ. Uh, and probably a question every one of us have wrestled with very personally in our lives. Like when it comes to the Bible, I, I mean, why should I believe the Bible? So we're going to start today with what the Bible says about itself and then work backwards with some of the evidence for why we believe that's true. When we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Some English translations go like this, all Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed. In other words, we know that God's Spirit and His Word always work together. And, and it's a way of saying God's Word wasn't written by somebody on drugs or somebody with an agenda to control the world or, 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 or just carelessly by people who didn't know what they were talking about. Scripture is God-breathed. It was written by people upon whom God moved so that it reflects God's mind and God's heart. And it's useful. It's useful. Then he, he marshals four verbs for us. It's useful for teaching. That's what we need to believe. For rebuking, that's what we need to stop doing. And for correcting, that's what we need to start doing. And for training in righteousness, that's what we need to become. It's very holistic. So that in the end, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, get this, for every good work. Everything of God's purpose that is upon your life, God's Word equips you to be able to live it out. Like one young professional friend of mine said, quite successful himself, he said, you know, Pastor, it's, it's wonderful. We here at church get something that, that most people don't get. I mean, we come and we listen to the teaching of the Word of God, and it's like, it's like we get a life coaching session every week. Like, who gets that? So this is what God's Word does in our lives. But that kind of begs the question, though, like, but what evidence is there that the Bible is trustworthy? Okay, if that's what the Bible says about itself, that's not enough. I mean, is there any evidence that that's true, what the Bible says about itself? So I'm going to steal this morning, or borrow, I won't, thou shalt not steal, but I'll borrow an acrostic from Christian Research Institute that's a mental, uh, that's like a, a, a memory tool. And as some of our Bibles have, printed Bibles have maps in the back, we're just going to take the word maps, M-A-P-S, as a little memory tool that may help you when you're sharing with others or for sure as you process this yourself. And the M stands for, when it comes to evidence, the manuscript evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. And there's a lot of it. Professors Kreeft and Ticelli from Boston University, they write, the manuscripts that we have, these, these manuscripts of, of, of Scripture, in addition to be very old, they are also mutually reinforcing and consistent. There are very few discrepancies and no really important ones. And all later discoveries of manuscripts, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, have confirmed rather than refuted previously existing manuscripts in every important case. And then get, get this, what these two scholars say. There is simply no other ancient text in nearly as good a shape. 
as the manuscript textual evidence of the Bible. But you always hear this, and I wondered it too. But but did I mean, I mean, these manuscripts are like the Bible was written thousands of years ago. I mean, hasn't it changed? Haven't there been editorial errors all along throughout the last two to three thousand years? And and haven't people people rewritten parts of the Bible to fit their own agendas or to make certain pieces of the Bible fit that, sh that, that don't. And actually, the idea, uh, that idea is, is, it, it turns out not to be the case at all. And back in the 1940s, there was an amazing discovery made called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Dr. Wave Nunley, who will dig a little deeper on this next week, actually was one of the scholars who helped make the Dead Sea Scrolls available to researchers all around the world. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were written 250 years before Christ. Say the Old Testament, up, up to this time we only had the Masoretic text, which, which was written in 1000 AD, after Christ. So, so far the, the, the most recent, before the Dead Scrolls, the most recent text was written uh, 1000 years after Christ. But look what Dr. Peter Flint, a Dead Sea Scroll researcher, writes. The biblical Dead Sea Scrolls are up to 1,250 years older than the traditional Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text. We have been using, up to now, a 1,000-year-old manuscript to make our Bibles. But we now have scrolls going back to 250 years B.C., and our conclusion is simply this. The scrolls confirm the accuracy of the biblical text by 99%. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the entire, as well as fragments of most all the Old Testament uh, books, we found the entire scroll of, of Isaiah in our Old Testament. And has it been rewritten and changed from, from when it was written like 700 years before Christ? No. It is virtually identical to the Isaiah you have in your Bible. These texts have not changed over time. And what about the New Testament then? Most of the New Testament was written within 40 years of Jesus' life on earth. And Josh McDowell puts it this way, I believe there is more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than for any other 10 pieces of classical literature put together. And we don't doubt the manuscript evidence of classical literature, but boy, is our world harassed with doubts about Scripture, and yet it hangs together. There's more evidence than 10 pieces of classical literature that we don't question put together. You see, written that close to the life of Jesus, I mean, I mean, people like Luke, writers in the New Testament like Luke and, Luke and Paul, there are moments where they, they're built on eyewitness testimonies, and, and there are times where they simply say, you don't believe me? In so many words, you don't believe me? Go ask the eyewitnesses. And that's a good way to discredit yourself if you're just making this up. In fact, a few years ago, journalist Mark Pinsky was writing about scientists at the peak of their careers in Great Britain that are turning to the Christian faith. And there's two reasons. Number one is what their science has been telling them about our universe. And then the number two, the firsthand eyewitness validity of the original New Testament documents. This, this is it. So there's all kinds of manuscript evidence for, for the authenticity of Scripture. Why is Scripture trustworthy? Well, first of all, uh, the manuscripts hang together for us, and they have not changed over the centuries. 
So that's M, manuscript evidence. And then A in MAPS, A for archaeological evidence. You maybe heard about the archaeologist who got in front of a group and he said, I'm afraid I have to tell you that my career lies in ruins. <laughs> yeah, think about that for a minute. On April 8, 1966, Time magazine put on its cover what's become the most iconic, famous magazine cover in American history. And it simply asked this question, is God dead? I was 13 years old on April 8, 1966, and uh, it sort of signaled a whole God is dead movement in America or the radicalism of the mid-60s into the 70s. However, at the same time, just eight years later, Dr. Gregory Borey writes a book, a very interesting book, called Letters from a Skeptic. And in that book, he said, the Bible has time and time again proven itself to be archaeologically accurate. And then, and then, of all things, he quotes Time magazine, who had the Is God Dead cover story on, on its most famous issue eight years earlier. Even, he writes, even Time magazine in its December 1974 issue in an article about biblical archaeology stated that, quote, the Bible is often surprisingly accurate in historical particulars, more so than earlier generations of scholars ever suspected. So while it's planning the doubt in the American population, is God even alive? It has to admit at the same time, archaeology is taking us the other direction, improving more and more. Every, all the details, all the names, all the places, all the geographical formations described in the Bible are archaeologically accurate. Professor Walter Kaiser writes, no, uh, no previous generation has witnessed so high a degree of collaboration of biblical events, persons, and historical settings as we have during the past century of ongoing successful archaeological exploration. Then he goes on to say the quantity, the quality, and the relevancy of the artifacts and epigraphical materials impinging upon the story of the Bible from the ancient Near East have been so staggering that few have been able to incorporate them into one place, although he tried. Those words were written in the introduction to this big book. It's the Archaeological Study Bible. And it is amazing. You read through this Bible, you read the text of the Scripture, and it's got pictures and write-ups about all of the archaeological evidence for the names, the dates, the places. Uh, it, it just, it's just amazing. I mean, it's a very thick book, and it's not full of full of a thick book full of contradictions. I mean, every page. I mean, I mean, there is validity to this. Now, if you're really struggling with the authenticity of God's Word and its accuracy, I encourage you to do your homework. Get a book like this or go to Israel with us because we experience this every day when we're in Israel. So there's manuscript evidence. There's archaeological evidence. And then we come to P because there's also prophecy. There's prophetic evidence that the Bible hangs together. So we'll go back to the Bible itself. And this time Peter is writing in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 20, he said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, and of course for Peter, Scripture uh, was the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles. No prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That would be a paraphrase of where we started when Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They weren't writing their own thoughts. And he specifically identifies the prophets because the Old Testament is full, chock full of prophetic declarations. It's chock full of the record of the prophets and, and of what they said. You'll find the Old Testament prophecies about cities that later in history came came to pass, like Tyre and its destruction. Quite a bit of detail about how the city of Tyre would be destroyed and, 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 and some of its, some of its uh, remnants thrown into the Mediterranean Sea and all this. All of this happened to the detail uh, many years later. Sidon, uh, Babylon, and most of all, Jerusalem. All kinds of prophecies. Like Jesus, in the Gospels, he very specifically prophesies with, with amazing amount of detail the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in Jerusalem. And that actually happened 40 years after Jesus died and rose again. And there's prophecies about world empires in the Bible, like Daniel, who's a remarkable prophet. And, and he, sees, he sees these pictures of coming world empires. Daniel dates well before these things. He was in the Babylonian Empire, so he sees, he sees images with the appropriate symbols of the Babylonian Empire. And then he, and, and, and then he predicts the coming of the Medo-Persian Empire, which we now know followed the Babylonian Empire, and then the, Greek, the rise of the Greek Empire following the Medo-Persians' uh, rule, and then, and then out of the Greek Empire coming the Roman Empire. Daniel predicts all of these. And not only that, most of all, most of the prophetic content of the Old Testament predicts the coming of the Messiah. This was it. This is what set people up in Jesus' time. A Messiah is coming, a deliverer. Somebody has set us free. Because the Old Testament, I mean, I mean, it's full of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And it turns out that Jesus fits those prophecies to the detail. I mean, it literally says the Messiah is going to be in the Old Testament. Like Micah prophesies the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And it prophesies, uh, there's going to be a forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, prophesies all of that. It, 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 you see, uh, like 500 years before it happened, you, you see the prediction that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem in particular on a donkey, like we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It tells us in that same book of Zechariah that Jesus is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and then that money is going to be used by the temple authorities to buy a field from a potter. I mean, it's all there in stunning detail. And then Psalm 22, hundreds of years before crucifixion was identified, was invented as a means of execution. It describes in detail the agony of a crucified victim and what happens physiologically and emotionally to that person. And that's, the, that's what Jesus quotes actually from the cross, from that psalm. It's amazing. And, and, then, and, and then you've got things that didn't fit people's picture of the Messiah in Jesus' time. Like Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment that made for our peace was on him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we were healed. And you know, 
that didn't fit people's picture of the Messiah. But Jesus would later say after his resurrection, didn't you know from the scriptures that the Son of Man, first of all, has to suffer? And he'd have stripes put on his back and be crucified as payment for your sin and my sin. I mean, even, even beyond the, the, perf- the messianic expectations of the Jews in Jesus' time, it turns out the scriptures were always there to describe it with absolute perfection. And then there's prophecies about the end times. There were, were, you know, all of those haven't been fulfilled. But Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Revelation, I mean, they talk to us about, about the aligning of nations towards one world government, the aligning of currencies and global economies. They talk to us about, about mass communication where everybody on the face of the earth can see a certain event take place. And, to, and they talk about uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. None of this kind of technology was available at that time, but it sees that. And then, remarkably, it, it says, in the end times, the center of world attention is going to be on Israel. Now, two and three thousand later, years later, I mean, no people group has stayed together in history that long, and even this past week, Israel has been the center of world attention. And so, you read this stuff, and you go, and that leads us to the S, M-A-P-S, statistics. In the words of Hank Hanegraaff in his book, The Defense of the Faith, it is statistically preposterous that any or all of the Bible's specific detailed prophecies could have been fulfilled through chance, good guessing, or deliberate deceit. Statistically, it just can't happen. I like to look at it this way. The Bible consists of 66 books written over 1,600 years. That's a millennium and a half. Over 1,600 years, 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages. What are the odds that it would have a consistent message cover to cover about the nature of God, the nature of human beings, and God's plan in the world? If I could take, if I could take this Bible and summarize its consistent message in one sentence, it would be simply this. The God who created us has acted to rescue us. That's it. Thank God the God who created us didn't leave us to self-destruct. But the Bible's right about God. It's right about human nature. It says that there's a God who loves us. He's created us. So Jesus captured it all when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not self-destruct, should not perish, should not be eternally separate from God, but would have everlasting life. That's the story of the Bible. And it's consistent from cover to cover. It defies all of the statistical probabilities that it would have happened by chance. So there's manuscript evidence, M. There's A, archaeological evidence. There's prophetic evidence. There's statistical evidence. And if the Christian Research Institute would not mind me messing with their acrostic this morning, I have to add just one more S on Pentecost Sunday. And it's spirit. I hope you go to Israel someday and come away with your faith strength. I hope you pick up books like this and research and do your own study. But I want to tell you, Jesus, the night, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he started in vague terms talking to his disciples about going away. And they're, they're scratching their head. What do you mean you're going away? He said, don't worry, because I'm not going to leave you alone. And he says in John 14, verse 26, but the advocate, and then he defines advocate. It's a legal term. 
but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, somebody who's going to advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Your Heavenly Father will send the Holy Spirit in in Jesus' name, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. There's word and spirit. He said the Holy Spirit is going to make alive to you the word of God so you understand it. Well, this happened on the day of Pentecost about 50 days after Jesus told his disciples that, 50 days after he died and was rose from the dead. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon those gathered in Jerusalem, those followers of Christ. And it said they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we sang that this morning. Oh, God, God, you're welcome in this place. Come fill our hearts. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was like this holy wind they heard blow through the place. Oh, God, let your holy wind blow through our lives and our church again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues. There was word. There was word, supernatural word, because God was now employing us to be his mouthpiece to the world. And we need his power to do that, to take the gospel to every nation. That's what Pentecost was all about. But something about spirit and word came together. And there are, there are millions of people right now that are being baptized in the Holy Spirit all around our world. This is the front edge of the growth of the church globally. And I just personally have anecdotally heard from so many people. They say, when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's like God's Word just came alive to me. It's like all this, I just would scratch my head. All of a sudden, all the pieces connected. I could understand. It was like God was speaking to me. This is what the Holy, this is what Jesus said the advocate will do. He will take the things I've taught you and make them real to you when you're full of the Holy Spirit. In your altar call this morning, if you do know Jesus, but you're struggling with doubt or you don't know Jesus, you're a skeptic. I mean, your altar call is in part to do your homework. You're going to find that the Bible, the, the Bible will hold up to the most minute scrutiny you want to put it to. But at the same time, the other part of the altar call is to dare to become hungry for God. Maybe your Bible reading as a Christian has even grown kind of dull. I think the solution is to get on your face and say, God, help me just be hungry for your spirit again. Just fill me. Because God's word and his spirit can work together. And he can make his word alive to you. There's going to be the intellectual journey for many people to understand the trustworthiness of scripture. But it's never just an intellectual journey. It's God by his spirit filling your heart until you know this is the word of God and Jesus did die for my sins and he's on a mission and he wants to use me with spirit anointed power and purpose. Thank God for that. I'd like the worship team and the worship choir to come up please and just bow your heads with me.